to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Nice to see you. Likewise, we'll skip the medical report this week. <laughs> you know, we've had uh, quite a lot of reaction to our, our recent podcast. We're kind of in the middle of the uh, post-Supreme Court term season, and Certainly the court ended the term with some controversial and interesting cases, including the 303 case. Uh, That is the case with the Colorado web designer, which we've discussed and which we will be discussing again in a forthcoming episode with a uh, very special guest. Uh, We discussed recently the affirmative action case with uh, Jeff Brenzel, who's going to be joining us again for kind of a part two and other cases as well. So we've had some feedback from our audience on these uh, episodes. And, you know, last year, some of our biggest listenership of the year occurred in the aftermath of the of the, import, the big cases, no surprise. And same thing this year, and but also this year, a lot of comments. Um, so very happy that the audience is becoming engaged. And also I've noticed that most of you are heeding our request that you include your email address, so we're thankful for that, so we can reply to you if, if necessary. Um, but anyway, uh, a couple of things have emerged from that. One is that um, people are very interested in the two cases that we just covered recently. And on the affirmative action case, uh, we did a, get a couple of people asking us to get a little bit more into the uh, sort of the, the argument uh, in the opinion of the majority. We talked about the fact that we're going to get into the dissents. And it's true that we pretty much summarized the the argument and then moved on. And some of that has to do with the nature of our guest, Jeff Franzel, who's not an attorney, but rather an expert on admissions itself. And so we approach it from that point of view. But, you know, when we get into the dissents, we'll get into it, I think, uh, in contrasting it with the reasoning of the majority. So we'll give you an opportunity to get those kinds of insights. So thank you for that that feedback, and we'll be back to you on that. And then on the 303 case, a um, couple of things. As I said, we're going to, to get more into it, um, but there was a, a lot of reaction to the title of the episode. Uh, the title of the episode was The Rights of Bigots. And... Let me read you some response, some uh, response we got from the uh, from from the audience, so you can get a sense of some of the the nature of some of the responses. So, uh, Mr. Charlie Myers um, said to us, "I was a bit taken aback by the use of bigot in the title this week, and usage by Akil during the podcast. I immediately jumped to the toxic usage of the term, which I think is what most people think of." In researching the word, I guess there is a somewhat more benign usage. I know Akil is precise with his language, but it was still not clear to me whether Akil was actually classifying Ms. Smith as a bigot. I think some might say that classifying Ms. Smith as a bigot is in and of itself a form of bigotry. Okay, that's Mr. Myers. And then we had another comment from Eduardo Zermeno, um, who said... Why do you call people like me, devout, obedient Catholics, bigots for believing that marriage should be between a man and a woman? I'm a big fan of yours, and that hasn't changed. 
but it was hurtful to be called a bigot repeatedly in your most recent episode. I admire you. There's not a lot of spaces in liberal land where people will take conservative ideas seriously. Your podcast is one of them. I will keep listening. I think you're brilliant and fair. But dismissing everyone who doesn't agree with your definition of marriage, especially those trying to humbly follow Jesus Christ as bigots, was surprising and hurtful. God bless you and your family. Okay, so first of all, I have to compliment our listeners on kind of a fair-mindedness uh, to the spirit of their of their comments, um, which I I hope reflects the fair-mindedness that we try to project um, in in our podcast in general. But um, so let me give Akil a chance to respond to to this, uh, and uh, perhaps I'll weigh in as well. So I think they're right. I have a rule that when more than one person tells me the same thing, I'm going to especially listen. When one person says something, fine. But when two people say the same thing by way of a criticism, I'm going to take that very seriously. Jesus very famously said, when, when two or more are gathered in my name, I am there. So when two or more people tell me the same thing, I should take it seriously. And I think it was an unfortunate word. I'm going to talk a little bit about why I used it. But on reflection, I think it was, and I used it again and again and again. Andy was right to highlight that word by putting it in the title because I went there and he just followed. So do not blame Andy for this. Akil chose this word again and again and again. And I think it was perhaps an ill-chosen word. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about some of the deep background here. We generally don't try to engage in name calling on this podcast. We try to be generous and sympathetic toward people of other points of view. And I think that that word wasn't didn't wasn't faithful to what this podcast generally tries to do. I'm, I'm not sure I've, I've yet come up with a better word because there were reasons why I wanted to capture uh, that I wanted to capture with the word bigot, which to repeat, I think is not the, the, the best word. There were certain reasons I used that um, word. So let me maybe just identify some of those reasons, Andy, unless you want to jump in at this point. Well, I'd like to say, look, I came up with the title. It's true, Akil used the word several times. and I, Many but, times, Andy. This is on me. Well, it seemed like a logical title, but let me just say what, what was in my mind when I chose it. Number one, the fact that he used it a lot. Number two, the fact that I took the logic of the opinion, not necessarily the characterization of Ms. Smith, we can discuss that, um, but whatever my personal characterization of Ms. Smith might be, whether, whether I would consider her a bigot or not, is not really all that relevant. Um, I mean, I'm entitled to my opinion as well. <laughs> but, but um, and, and I'm not going to, you know, really say what, what my opinion is right now. But what I, what I took the logic of the opinion to be was that you could be as bigoted as you wanted to be in your expression um, as a private individual, and that right is protected by this decision. So from that point of view, it is about the rights of bigots. Whether or not you characterize Ms. Smith as a bigot, I, I took that to be the logic of the... And after all, the, the opinion is important, not because of Ms. Smith, really. I mean, as many people have pointed out, she hasn't even had any customers yet for this business. So 
it's a it's important in terms of how it might affect behavior going forward. And so the logic of the opinion I thought reflected that's that phrase. So that was one reason that I chose. Another reason was and, and you just hang on on that. You're absolutely right. And I mean, if it would have, if it just been the title, I think the criticism would have been a little bit perhaps extreme. So it's it's not the title. It's it's actually that I said this about Miss Smith. You know, I just got to have to own what I said. You know, if we rolled the tape, I'm sure you know we'd hear me say this, and not just once, again and again and again. And that's what I mean. I'm going to say a little bit more about why I did say that. But you're absolutely right. That's the logic of our position. And and a second thing, Andy, I know you were going to say some other things. Is we got people's eyeballs. Now th- that's not a great excuse. You see, to to sort of exaggerate and then then kind of back away or something. It's we generally sensationalism. don't. We we don't do that on the, the, this podcast. But that's why we come back to you. And oh, a lot of people. This is one of our. Um, a lot of people listen. This is one of my, our more um, listened to episodes. That's just not generally our philosophy. But um, our philosophy is to actually identify logic. And Andy, that is the logic of my position, that people have a right to be bigoted, put aside, you know, um, the specifics of Miss Smith, but people have an absolute right to discriminate. And indeed, if you believe, if you're a person of faith, you quite often believe, not always, that people of other faith backgrounds are, are deeply, deeply wrong. And you have that right. And, and from a certain point of view, even if you're a religious zealot, and that's now we're getting close to the definition of bigotry in a dictionary, someone who has a, a very strong dogmatic view, often religious, you have an absolute right to be that. Mm-hmm. The, other, the other reasons that I, that I chose it were, as I said, because you did go there, and number three, because it had echoes for me, as I know it did for you, of another case, the Obergefell case, and the words of Justice Alito in that uh, in that case now, and and those words echoed in my ears as as I thought about this. So um, I thought that from the point of view, uh, almost a, not quite a scholarly point of view, but but at least a a referential point of view, a constitutional ecosphere point of view, that the word is already out there. Thanks to Justice Alito, or no thanks to Justice Alito, perhaps, um, and. Uh, and and therefore was appropriate. So anyway, this is not to make excuses. This is the truth of what was going through my mind uh, when I chose that. And not sure, you know, I'm not sure. I, this is a, this is not a, necessarily an apology, but I think I certainly can see the point of view of the people that wrote in. Right. Well, for me, it is an apology because, as I said, I think you have nothing to apologize for, Andy, in picking this as the title. I did choose this word, and I was thinking about. Justice Alito, but I think I was too aggressive. And I'm going to say some more about why I was, but in using that word again and again uh, in connection to the litigant, Ms. Smith. But here's the passage, Andy, that was in my head as I use this word bigot, because it's just out there in the, the discourse and the literature and was even before our podcast. Here's the key language from Justice Alito's dissent in the Obergefell case. Remember, that's the same-sex marriage case from 2015. And just by way of, again, a little bit more context, it was a five to four decision by Justice Anthony Kennedy, a Republican appointee in the Earl Warren tradition, a Republican 
a Northern California Republican in the Earl Warren tradition, an opinion affirming a constitutional right everywhere in America to same-sex marriage by a five-to-four vote. Kennedy joined by the then four Democratic appointees because Breyer uh, was on the court, now replaced by K- um, KBJ. So was RBG, Justice Ginsburg, who now, of course, has been replaced by a conservative, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, and Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. So the four then uh, liberal Democrats joined by Anthony Kennedy, and indeed opinion written by Anthony Kennedy, the four dissenters, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Clarence Thomas, Justice Antonin Scalia, and Justice Sam Alito. So five to four, here's Alito. One final thing, I thought that case was easy and obvious in that my key idea is that there's an, a 14th Amendment commitment to birth equality. We're all created equal. We're going to come back to that phrase later in this episode, famous phrase from the Declaration of Independence. We're all created equal. We're all born equal in the language of the 14th Amendment. Everyone born in the United States is born a citizen, born a full and equal citizen. Everyone's born equal. And in my view, what does that birth equality idea mean, that creational equality idea mean? means that we're born equal, created equal, whether we're born black or white, or male or female, or gay or straight, or for that matter, born Jew or Gentile, born first or fifth in the family, born in wedlock or out of wedlock, born equal. And indeed, I think the new book, Volume 2, may well be called, maybe it will be titled Born Equal. So I thought it was an actually a pretty easy case. If if straights can marry, if people born straight can marry, people who are born gay should be allowed to marry. These are rights against the government, you see. If Patrick is allowed to marry Jane, Patricia should be allowed to marry Jane. And indeed, Patrick at some point might marry Jane and then become Patricia. And it's still a valid marriage in Akil's mind. And now in the Supreme Courts, and that's binding Supreme Court precedent. So I thought it was pretty easy Actually, straightforward application of the birth equality principle, which is a principle that applies against the government. Now, in articulating my my support for the opinion in a a piece, a two-part piece um, for Slate back in 2015 when the opinion came out called um, What the Same-Sex Marriage Case Should Have Said and Almost Did, and we'll put that up on our website as well, I say justice Alito actually has an argument in dissent, and I identify it, and then I try to squarely address it. And here's what, and then I'm going to read you the language from his dissent where he uses the word bigots, which is why I picked up on that. But here's what I said back in 2015. Justice Samuel Alito was highly persuasive in reminding us that the anti-same-sex marriage laws at issue were hardly irrational. Following tradition is often quite rational, and every reform is likely to have unintended consequences. Not all these consequences may be apparent immediately. Same-sex marriage is an experiment, and the jury is still out. Fair enough. But once again, the same could have been said about couverture abolition in 1970. Couverture was a um, a traditional set of rules giving men special powers in, in marriage. And Alito's arguments merely explain why the laws at hand are rational. What he failed to explain is why mere rationality was enough. 
why these discriminatory laws should not be treated with special judicial skepticism, what we called in the last episode, Andy, strict scrutiny, as are many other traditional gender laws. Laws that discriminated against illegitimate children were not irrational. They arguably incentivized the biological parents to marry. And some of these laws had deep historical roots. Yet the court rightly invalidated these laws as violative of the birth equality principle. Jim Crow was a pretty strong tradition in 1954, but Brown was nevertheless clearly right, and so is Obergefell. So my claim is, you know, the Constitution doesn't quite say tradition. It says equality, and that's equality male or female. That's equality legitimate, born legitimate or illegitimate. That's equality um, male or female, so you can't privilege the male in the marriage curvature laws. And it's equality whether you're born gay or straight. So I think it's an easy, straight-up case. If you understand the constitutional principle, I understand the argument on the other side, especially from Justice Alito, who is, I would say, a self-described traditionalist, and that's his message. Now, here's the language he used in his dissent. And this is language that I echoed, even as I think he actually doesn't have a good point here, although he did have a point about tradition. I, I just think tradition is trumped by text. But he went on to say the following, perhaps recognizing how its reasoning may be used, the majority, that is Justice Kennedy's majority opinion, attempts toward the end of its opinion, to reassure those who oppose same-sex marriage that their rights of conscience will be protected. And by the way, that's why I'm with 303. I think it actually follows from Obergefell. Obergefell promised to protect the rights of people who don't believe in same-sex marriage, the rights of private citizens. And that's just what 303 does. And so I'm for Obergefell, and I'm for that passage, and I'm also for 303. We will soon see whether this proves to be true, says Justice Alito. I assume that those who cling to old beliefs will be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes. But if they repeat those views in public, they will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. So that's where the word bigots is coming from. And here's what I wanted to admit. I do think that private people have a right to treat other private people and to label them as bigots. I think Justice Alito is collapsing things in just the way, ironically, that Justice Sotomayor collapsed things in the 303 case. So he's collapsing, being labeled as a bigot, and you just have to run that risk. And that's different than being treated as a bigot by governments, okay, because you have rights against government, okay? Schools, well, it depends, in my view, whether the school is a public school or a private school. Employers, he says, well, it depends whether it's a public employer or a private employer. So, let me just take a step back. Whether Obergefell is the law or is not the law, I have a right to be bigoted, and someone else has a right to call me a bigot. Okay, Um, and that's true to repeat whether there's a right of same sex marriage against the government or not. So he's saying, gee, once we affirm a right of same sex marriage, you know, the Achilles of the world are going to be allowed now to call the Smiths of the world bigoted. Well, the Achilles of the world can do that without Obergefell on the books. Either way, I get to do that. And either way, the Smiths of the world are allowed to oppose same sex marriage in their 
personal behavior in their speech. They don't have to engage in a same-sex marriage. They don't have to attend a same-sex marriage. They don't have to celebrate a same-sex marriage. They don't have to perform it as a celebrant. I don't think that they have to create a website for it. And that's, by the way, true, whether it's a constitutional um, right against the government or it isn't a constitutional right against the government. So Justice Alito, I think, this past year is unfortunate. What is a constitutional right against the government? Excuse me? Whether what is a constitutional right against Same the government? Same-sex marriage. Okay. Justice Alito here is kind of moving very quickly to the culture war issue of, of how we think about each other in private. And I think that's the same wrong move that Justice Sotomayor made in her dissent. Now, they're very interesting. They're both dear friends of mine, and they both went to Princeton undergrad and, and Yale Law School. They have certain similarities in about the same era. They're, they're rough contemporaries. And the basic point is not understanding in these passages of Justice Alito's and the corresponding passages of Justice Sotomayor's three dissent, the first principles of the state action doctrine. To repeat, you have constitutional rights against the government. It can't prevent people from engaging in a same-sex marriage if it allows opposite-sex marriage. It can't discriminate, okay? But private folks can, and Colorado went too far, Justice Sotomayor, in denying the right of private people to criticize same-sex marriage, either affirmatively or, you know, more modestly by simply declining to participate in activities that promote same-sex marriage. So that word bigot was on my mind because of Justice Alito's passage. It was very aggressive of me. So, and analytically, we did defend the rights of bigots, but that's not a defense for my calling Ms. Smith, whom I've never met, a bigot again and again and again, don't think I should have done that. But I'm going to now say to my friends who uh, wrote in, and there were many, many other people. Those were just two. I'm actually now going to tell you some hard and unpleasant truths from a political science perspective about where the world is going and why. And even though Akil doesn't actually think you're a bigot and isn't going to call you that, the world is and will, and increasingly so, and we'll give you the reasons why I actually just believe that as a matter of social science. And then I'll also tell you, since the word bigot is connected with certain religious zealotry, why I actually, as a Christian, read the Gospels and the teachings of Jesus very differently. So since we're going there, well, let's talk about that. Andy, you don't want to jump in? No, I have nothing to say. I mean, I think you said it very well. Okay. And I don't okay. really, the only okay, thing that so, I would say was, is that uh, when you talked about Colorado, it's not so, it's not just that you have the right to decline to do something. I, I would put it a little more strongly that you that Colorado cannot compel you to do it. Just by virtue of your being in the marketplace, you can't be compelled to engage in speech that you you know the that viewpoint based speech uh, uh, with which viewpoint you disagree with. So I think that's a stronger formulation of it. Great. So let me first talk as a political scientist. So, and as an historian, norms about human sexuality are changing with astonishing speed. Partly this is because of science. 
it was once science fiction to think that you could have babies without having sex or sex without having babies. That's now science. Um, it was once science fiction to think that a man could legally become a woman with major changes of body shape or that a woman could become a man. That's not science fiction. That's medicine today. That's law today. There is a legal right of someone who on the birth certificate is identified as male to legally become female or vice versa. There are medical techniques. We used to call them, this is no longer the politically correct term, sex change operations. A gender reassignment therapy, I think, is the proper formulation today. One argument for Obergefell was that even before Obergefell, in all 50 states, there was already same-sex marriage from a certain point of view. And this is what I, I wrote about because Patrick marries Jane, Patrick becomes Patricia, and that does not ipso facto dissolve the marriage the way Patrick's death would dissolve the marriage. Changing your sex is not like dying, you see. And so that's same-sex marriage in all 50 states before Obergefell. And you say, well, Patrick isn't really Patricia. I'm saying, yes, Patrick is Patricia legally in all 50 states. And this was before Obergefell. Are those a series of state rights or is it a constitutional right? Well, once enough states do it, you see, under a Mars sort of counting theory and blah, blah, blah. But but anyway, um, I, I actually haven't looked at, didn't look at all the laws. Leave that for as an assignment for one of our readers to do that and uh, send me the data, send us the data. Okay. Attitudes about gender and sex are changing very dramatically. And there is a generational aspect to all of this. And the numbers are astonishing, Andy. So, 40 years ago, what percentage of people would have been in favor of same-sex marriage? Just, you know, when you and I graduate from, from college, probably below 10%, right? Now, what are the numbers? Probably above 60%. Mm -hmm. And in the last 20 years, gone from 30% support to 60% support. And it's changing every year, and it's not wobbling. It's not oscillating, because here's why. Every year, more people change their mind in one direction than the other direction. More people who were opposed to same-sex marriage now are okay with it and go the other way. Every year, more people who are opposed, a higher percentage of people who are opposed to same-sex marriage die, and a higher percentage of people who are in favor of same-sex marriage come of age politically. They hit their 18th birthday. So here are some um, statistics on attitudes toward same-sex marriage from the Pew Research Center. Um, so in 2004... 31% of Americans were in favor of same-sex marriage, 60% opposed. In 2019, 61% supported it, 31% opposed it. So a complete about-face on that. And, of course, there is somewhat of a partisan divide. But sure. even among Republicans, Republican leaners, 56% um, uh, support it. Right. So. And that was four years ago, since I mentioned generational issues and age issues on some issues, as people age, they're going to change their minds, or at least that's the historical data. I'm telling you this as a political scientist, they become a little more conservative about taxes, for example, and, and government spending and, and other things. But my view is that certain ideas are at least asymmetrically fixed pretty early in life. And if you grow up, thinking that it's just perfectly okay to be gay, that you grew up with gay friends and it's no big deal and they're just like everyone else, you're unlikely to change 
that view as you age. Again, I, I think if you grow up with more traditional views, it's possible you'll you'll move in the liberal direction on this. That's the movement that we've seen. People who are liberal on sec- human sexuality issues, at least on this issue, the rights of gay Americans are unlikely to change as they age. As more and more time passes, my prediction is there are going to be fewer and fewer traditionalists. And I'm not going to call you a bigot. I'm chastened by your comments, audience members. But more people in the world will, because you're going to be an increasingly small minority, and you got to, and I'm just telling you as a political scientist, get used to that. That's Akhil speaking as a political scientist. Now, Akhil speaking as an historian would say, oh, I've seen this before. I've seen this on interracial marriage. There was a time, and then I'm going to segue from all that to the religious claim. There was a time, Andy, that interracial marriage was highly controversial. That's actually even in our lifetime, since we mentioned the great Benno Schmidt, who was recently passed, former president of Yale. We mentioned that he, as Earl Warren's law clerk, authored the Loving versus Virginia decision about a right against the government to engage in interracial marriage. And loving is the basis for Obergefell in all sorts of ways. And Justice Kennedy sees himself very much in an Earl Warren tradition. He grows up in Sacramento, does Anthony Kennedy in the shadow, literally, of Earl Warren. He's a page in the California state capitol, is a young Anthony Kennedy. I believe his sister was a very good friend of Earl Warren's daughter, that Earl Warren spent time in the Kennedy family home. Anthony Kennedy thinks a lot about Earl Warren. Earl Warren was a Republican on a Democrat-controlled court. He was the Democrats' favorite Republican. That's kind of Anthony Kennedy. He gets confirmed in part because Democrats like him, and he's nominated by a a Republican president, Ronald Reagan. So Loving versus Virginia was all about a right of interracial marriage, miscegenation. It's 1967. And as late as 1967, Andy, our lifetime, we're, we're kids at the time, interracial marriage is controversial in some circles. It's not today in general. Okay, and there was again a generational dynamic. Um, this was coming uh, to dinner is the you know great movie. And there was a difference between the young people, Sidney Poitier, and and the old people. Was it Jane Fonda who who was the Catherine Houghton who was uh, Catherine Hepburn's niece? Uh, and Sidney Poitier. Yes. Okay. Okay, so there was a generational dynamic in that movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, between the, the younger interracial couple and the, the older and their parents. Mm-hmm. On both sides, actually, I think, the, the white parents and the, uh, the black parents. And people had biblical arguments uh, for their skepticism of interracial marriage. People had big, big uh, biblical arguments for segregation. People have biblical arguments for slavery. Jesus actually never says anything against slavery. In fact, in the the Gospels, slavery is an established practice in biblical times. And it gets racialized. There are, and I'm telling you this as an historian, there were um, folks who said there are different races and they're not supposed to intermingle because Noah has three sons. What are the three? The three sons of Noah, Andy, you remember them? They're Shem, Ham and Japheth. Okay. And they were understood um, by many Americans in the middle of the 
19th century, the middle of the 1800s, as the fathers, so to speak, of the different races. Okay, because they went to different parts of the world and God intended for these races to inhabit different continents and not to intermix. And, and I promise you, this was a religious view, a biblical view of a certain sort. You see, people have attitudes and often they will read the Bible in a certain way. And you would say, well, you know, listen, pal, and Jesus isn't saying anything about same sex marriage. And I'm saying he's also not saying much about the wrongness of slavery. Here's what I actually could, because I'm a Christian too. I read the gospels differently. I think, you know, he's very, he's a very unconventional rabbi. He hangs around with social misfits, with tax collectors and, and prostitutes. He's a champion of underdogs and outsiders, Samaritans. That's my interpretation of this reformist rabbi. All I'm telling you, friend to friend, is, and as a political scientist, as time goes forward, more people are not only going to be on my side on this issue, they're going to read the Bible that way. I'm just, this is just a prediction based on my study of history about what the future holds. And like all of my predictions, these are falsifiable. Just telling you, I told you who was going to win more versus Harper and pretty much the lineup and on other things. And I'm data driven. All that said, I shouldn't have used the word bigot because, in fact, it's not what I believe, truthfully. I, I said it to be a, um, provocative, but and, but here's part of why I say it, because I thought, and this is connected, Andy, to why you picked it as your title. It highlights a couple of points that are important analytically, that for me, even if what you say is hurtful and hateful, you have a right to say it, and I will defend that, even as I might criticize it. And second, it's a reminder, that word bigot, that speech can be, can hurt other people. Miss Smith's speech might be hurtful and is hurtful, I think, to lots of people who are hoping that she would want to celebrate with them. And I think just in my head, I was trying to use a word like bigot to just highlight the analytic point. Yes, words can be hurtful and we still protect them. And look, you're entitled to your personal opinion. Right, but I actually don't. Beliefs. I actually don't believe people are bigots. I, I think they are religious because because they're religious traditionalists. Who I, well, I think that's a pre- strong statement. You don't believe people are bigots. No, I don't believe that um, that all people who oppose same sex marriage are bigots. Yeah. I think many of them are. And, and when I wrote about it, I didn't talk about are deeply religious folk of a traditionalist sort and their their views are sincere and and central all that said my prediction is many of them even in their own lifetimes will change and will change in a liberal direction and not the other direction on average well i also think it's important in light of what you just said to make the point or to repeat the point from our prior discussion of the 303 case that this was not a decision based on religious freedom so the Correct. fact the fact that you say, well, you know, she may have held this opinion sincerely based on her religion, and it's not a bigoted opinion, is irrelevant to the decision. No matter what her reason for holding this opinion is, her right would be the same. As I described Justice Alito um, way back in 2015, I actually didn't talk about religion. What I said, I described him as a traditionalist. His point is, gee, 
this same-sex marriage thing is a very new thing. You know, we didn't really have it very prominently in 1950 or 1900 or 1850. So it seems pretty recent. And that's not a religious argument. That's just a traditional Burkean argument for tradition. Go slow. There are always going to be unintended consequences. So why are you constitutionalizing something that maybe is a fad? That's not a religious claim. That's a philosophical, Burkean claim. And if Miss Smith had those reasons for being skeptical of same-sex marriage, there that's not about religion, it's about something else. And my claim is, constitutionally, that wasn't, in the end, a winning argument, because the Constitution's text and its deep principles of birth equality trump tradition. They trump tradition. Segregation was traditional at a certain point. And laws against miscegenation were traditional at a certain point. And laws that privileged males over females in all sorts of situations were traditional at a certain point. The text and the, and, and the principle of equality trumps tradition in various domains. Yeah, indeed, one might, one might say that you might want to amend the Constitution precisely because you have a tradition working against you and, uh, you know, well, maybe it's a Ninth Amendment right or whatever. So if you clarify it in the text, then that's, that's the end of the argument in a sense. There's an excellent article by our friend Cass Sunstein, who was Matthew's mentor, who said some provisions of the 14th Amendment are about kind of preserving traditional entitlements, like property, for example, which can't be taken away without due process. And others, he said, are actually kind of anti-traditional, like the idea of equality. So he says the very same amendment has kind of mixed elements. It's a very interesting and important article that Cass wrote many years ago, one of many important articles he's contributed to our understanding of the Constitution. Okay, well, let's move on from that into uh, an area of current events that uh, is outside the immediate uh, topic of the Supreme Court. Um, and that's, uh, you know, we've, from time to time, we've, we've kind of ripped from the headlines various elements of criminal procedure. You know, we've seen, you know, all sorts of strange and terrible behavior and it's formed grist for our mill. Um, so, of course, there was this, this terrible uh, serial killer, uh, alleged, that was uh, arrested recently in, on Long Island. And, uh, you know, Akil calls me up. He's like, oh, this is another example. I was right, I was right, I was right. Okay, so um, what is it that you were right about? We talked about this with the Idaho suspect in the Idaho mass murder of those uh, college kids and their roommates. What I was right about is that our current Fourth Amendment regime is um, misshapen in connection with issues of DNA in particular and searching and seizing in general. Right now, we under-regulate certain kinds of police activities saying, oh, that's not a search. And so therefore, just all bets are off. You can do whatever you want. And we overregulate certain things by saying, well, it's a search and therefore it requires a warrant um, and probable cause rather than mere reasonableness. So to be clear, so, you're not, this discussion is not about amending the Constitution or changing the text of the Fourth Amendment or other relevant amendments, but rather you feel that maybe court doctrine or the application of the of the uh, these the constitution in certain contexts 
is is misplaced and has led to injustice and inefficiency. Exactly so. I think we are both hurting innocent defendants and letting a guilty go free with the exclusionary rule and putting innocent victims at risk because we're just not doing things the smart way. Let's take the rules of DNA. How, how was this Idaho suspect identified? Well, there was DNA at the crime scene, but we needed to match it up against something. Right now, you're allowed to basically, if you've got a hunch about someone, without any judicial involvement, you can just follow the person around. I mean, follow them around until they go into a restaurant and sip out of a, a straw or something and throw the the straw in the trash can. And now they've, oh, they've abandoned the straw. So now you can just fish it out and you've got their saliva on it. You can test for DNA and do all sorts of stuff. And no judge has to approve that at all. So there would be no claim that would be, that that, that this would be un, an unreasonable search either. So there might be two ways that it might be an unreasonable search, one might think. One, because they followed you around without probable cause maybe, or without uh, oh, that's not a with, search. That's just right, following. Right. Yeah. So following is not a search. Um, and number number one and number two, um, that they then seized um, material that uh, they said, "Well, it's not yours. You abandoned right, it. You it's abandoned not your property." It. So yeah. So and, uh, and this seems to me and oh and not just when you go to Pizza Hut, they can sit outside your house and surveil you. And then when you throw out your family trash, oh, you've abandoned it. Now they can go through your trash and find all sorts of stuff that implicates not just your privacy, but the privacy of members of your household. So in the Idaho case, they found some stuff from the father and did a DNA analysis of it and and linked that DNA to the DNA found at the crime scene. It wasn't the same person, but it was, they thought, with a very, very high degree of probability, a blood relative. Okay. And that's going to be relevant in the Long Island case too. And you want to say, well, is it, there, are there any different issues? Yeah, there are going to be a couple of different issues about the Long Island case that I, I want to highlight. But right now, just to repeat, the court says going through your trash isn't a search. I think, of course it's a search, you know, and it's deeply intrusive. You can find out all sorts of very embarrassing things about me, you know, so that under I'm what on- standard do you consider it a search? How would you articulate? Um, how you would differentiate between a search and and not a search in this context or in general? Well, the Fourth Amendment talks about the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. And I'd have a broad understanding of my effects, my stuff. Yes, I threw it out, but I threw it out for one and only one purpose, to be picked up by the trash collector and put taken to the town dump you know, and mixed with everything else. And I'm now having images of Alice's restaurant flash through my head. It's got to be mixed with all the other garbage. Okay. I'm not putting it out there so that the police can pick it up and rifle through it and find out all sorts of embarrassing things about me that I'm, that I, that I'm on flatulence medicine, that um, I'm on impotence medicine, that I'm trying to become pregnant or trying to avoid become pregnant, just, you know, all sorts of deeply personal things about me. So you're saying that actually putting it in the trash at that point does not cease to be your effect. At what point does it cease to be your effect? 
Well, if it's mixed up with all the other trash and it can't be individually identified, fine. So in um, other words, it, it's always your effect, is what you're saying. Because as long as it's possible to identify it as yours, it's it's still your effect. Now, and in fact, here's the point. And in but fact, here's the point. Right, but here's the point. Call it a search doesn't mean that the government can never do it. It just means that they need to have a good reason mm. for doing it. And and what are they doing with it and for what purpose? So if they're doing it, for example, just because I'm an outspoken opponent of the government and they're going to try to f- fish through this stuff to find something embarrassing on me, and now they're doing a DNA test on it and they're going to try to prove that I'm the father of some illegitimate kid out there, or I'm not the father of my own spouse's children born in wedlock. See, current doctrine says it's not a search. And why? Because doctrine sometimes says if it's a search, it would need probable cause. And I'm saying, well, I don't know if it needs probable cause. They say if it's a search, it needs a warrant. I say, I don't know if it needs a warrant. Going through a metal detector in an airport, that's a search, you know, of me. But there's no warrant. There's no individual probable cause here, but it's completely reasonable. Here's why. It's unintrusive. It's non-discriminatory. There's a good reason for it. I'm actually the beneficiary of it. So it's a search of me, totally reasonable, and the government isn't using it for any nefarious purpose. They're not singling me out. Okay? Do you think that so, in, the, in, the Pennsylvania, in the Idaho case, um, where the guy goes to Pennsylvania or whatever, and they search, search his trans, I mean, they had some reason to believe that he might have been involved. Yes, so, so this it, was, so that I was think it was a perfectly reasonable search. Okay. But doctrine just doesn't count it as a search at all. And so doctrine would say they could have done this without any real reason or justification. And that seems to me to be underprotective, okay? Now, why do they, why is it underprotective? Because doctrine on the other side is overprotective. Courts sometimes stupidly say, not always, but sometimes, gee, if it's a search, presumptively at least, it requires a warrant and probable cause unless it comes within the umpteen exceptions that we, the court, have generated to the probable cause requirement and the warrant requirement. We read in to the words of the Fourth Amendment a probable cause requirement that isn't there, a warrant requirement that isn't there. That makes no sense. We come up with a whole bunch of exceptions, but the exceptions are a patchwork. It's a Ptolemaic system of epicycles. And so we say it is a search, but it doesn't require a warrant because of this exception, because of the, you know, the arrest exception, the hot pursuit exception, the, the exigent circumstances exception, the Tuesday exception. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Okay. All right. So, so just, just for, so the audience doesn't get a mis, mis- impression here. So you're not saying that the search necessarily in the Idaho case uh, was unreasonable and was not co- not constitutional. You're just saying that the wrong the wrong questions were being are being asked, which is to say that no questions are being asked. Exactly. Because it's 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 just garbage, so therefore that you could do whatever you want. So you're saying, well, we should be asking is it reasonable? The answer is probably yes, it is reasonable. Well, see and now they just they don't just have my straw because that's the first thing that they took from me is the straw. And you can say, well, you gave, you gave it up. They're taking my saliva. And you say, well, it's out of your body. It's no longer yours. And now they're testing it for DNA. Oh, my gosh. 
boy, if that's not my effect, my DNA, just information about my essence. And now I'm thinking of Dr. Strangelove here, you know, my, my precious bodily fluids, you know, and, and the purity of my essence. You know, I, I got, heard that they're making a, uh, a play out of Dr. Strangelove. And now, now you know, the, we're in this now world where, where there's, you know, the Oppenheimer movie. And so we're having this interest in uh, nuclear issues. But uh, Dr. Strangelove is a play. Who's going to play? Who can do what Peter Sellers did? All the characters. Yeah. Astonishing. And there is a constitutional moment, many constitutional moments. But there's one moment in, in, in that movie. Coca-Cola um, Company. Yes. It's, it's, you, can't, you can't do that. That's private property. Okay. Private property. Oh, that's an important constitutional concept. Private property. Okay. But, and it's connected to the Fourth Amendment, you see. Private property. So is, okay, so not only do you have the straw. And they never had to explain, you know, under current doctrine, why they do. Because they just say, well, it's not your straw anymore. You gave up your saliva. They got that. But now they do a test on it. They have all sorts of information on me and my loved ones and, my, you know, my, my, my relations. Okay. Because with that DNA, they can find out information, you know, about, about other people of similar DNA who happen to be my blood relatives. And I'm not saying they can't ever do that. Of course they can. Right now, they don't need to generally explain any of that to anyone because doctrine says surveilling me wasn't a search and picking up the straw wasn't a search and taking the saliva off the straw wasn't a search and doing a DNA analysis on the saliva isn't a search and then comparing that DNA to other DNA in all sorts of databases about other people in the world and crime scene DNA, that's not a government search. And I'm saying, and why do they say that? Because if it were a search, doctrine sometimes said it would require probable cause and a warrant and that's too strict. I'm saying it is a search. It simply needs to be reasonable. And in these situations, actually, the government had good reason for doing what they did in Idaho and in Long Island. Now, why nope. is the Long Island case any different well, at all? I'll, I'll come down in a minute. But before we, we go there, I just, um, so if we think about this here, so, okay, they, they followed him around, and you say, that's a search, but it's reasonable. And then they picked up the trash, you know, they went through the trash, Alice's restaurant. That's a search, and it's reasonable. Then they find DNA of the father turns out and right. you're saying that's a search now is that reasonable they're trying to find a mass murder and they're not yet using that for any improper purpose like embarrassing you know the father because he's an outspoken critic of the government or right. something so now they've got the father's dna okay now, how does the Fourth Amendment pl- apply or general or other amendments to that DNA, not only for the purposes of relating the, you know, the pres- whether the presence of the suspect is there because of the familial relation, but can they retain the DNA? Can they keep the can they keep this information? Can they use it in a future investigation of the father for some unrelated issue? Um, yes, under current doctrine, evidently so. Because now it's theirs. Mm-hmm. It's their information. And so if they weren't want to examine that DNA in the future, is that a search? Under current doctrine, courts do not say that. Mm-hmm. And what do you say? 
I say that querying the database, even if it's a database of information that you, the government, have acquired, should be treated as a Fourth Amendment event, a search of sorts that requires justification, requires reasonableness. Why are you doing this? Is it, are you doing it um, more intrusively? And you have to, um, to go back to our conversation with Jeff, are you using the least restrictive means to accomplish a genuinely important government purpose? I want there to be scrutiny of what the government is doing here. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this takes us in, in more generally into the subject of DNA. Right. And I've written about this both in the pop press uh, for places like the New York Times and the journal for, for lawyers, ABA journal, and in more academic places like the Harvard Law Review. On the Long Island serial killer, here's actually a difference. So first of all, because these are a series of murders that took place over time, if they had solved the first one immediately, there'd be people alive today. Why didn't they solve the first one immediately? Because even though they found some hairs at the crime scene, they couldn't match them up because they didn't have a more comprehensive DNA database. I'm in favor of a more comprehensive DNA database, even though that's you know, a very dangerous thing for some of the reasons we've talked about, and I'd want it to be regulated. But if you had a more comprehensive DNA database, you might have been able to identify the killer earlier, and then there'd be people who are alive today. They staked out the house. They went through the trash. It's just like um, in, in Idaho. They acquired, actually, DNA from the suspect's wife. Um, in Idaho, it was the suspect's father, a blood relative. Now, her privacy is being intruded upon, you see. They now have her DNA. They matched her DNA to a hair at the crime scene because the theory is that he killed these women in his home. His wife was away at the time, but her hair was kind of, you know, in some of the space and got connected to. Yeah, I mean, if she um, brushed her hair in her bedroom or something, if the crime was in the bedroom, then of course there's going to be a hair there. So, Sure. They now have her DNA and now they actually have information in effect about her blood relative if they're trying to solve other crimes and all the rest. And, and what I'm saying is none of that required showing any judge at any point your justification for doing that. And no judge has put restrictions on how you can use that DNA information going forward. Now, if you were going to show a judge information in order to have him pass on the reasonableness of your search, I guess that's what you're doing, right? So are you asking at that point for a warrant or are you just asking no. for him to just... No, a warrant requires indiv- you know, probable cause and there's no probable cause when I'm going through a metal detector in an airport, there's no even individualized suspicion. Now, let me identify the reason that the serial killing uh, nature of it over time is important, because I have three ideas about mm-hmm. the Fourth Amendment. It doesn't require a warrant. It doesn't require probable cause, you know, as a general matter. It also doesn't require exclusion of evidence. Now, those are my three negative ideas of what it doesn't require. What do I say it requires? I say it requires reasonableness and we should have a broad definition of what counts as a search precisely because if it is a search, you don't necessarily need a warrant or probable cause. You just need to be reasonable. So reasonableness, a broad definition of search and seizure and tort remedies to protect innocent people rather than guilty people. That's my affirmative reconceptualization. And you're right, Andy. I'm not 
calling for an amendment to the Constitution. I'm calling for us to just understand what the Fourth Amendment actually says. But on the exclusionary rule, here was one of my claims. It's always been one of my claims. And I, for example, have always used a kidnapping victim in this hypothetical. Uh, And we used it in our past episode. Let's imagine the government commits a clear constitutional violation. Let's imagine, actually, it's not just that they don't have a warrant, they don't have probable cause. What they're doing is utterly unreasonable. Let's say they played a hunch, okay? Utterly whimsically. Let's say they were looking even for something else to just inculpate some critic of the government, you know, find something embarrassing. I was recently at an event where an author said, ah, here's what actually the burglars, the Watergate burglars were really looking for. They were really looking to prove that when they broke into the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate Hotel, that the DNC was running some sort of call girl operation for big shot Democrats who came to town for conventions and all the rest, and they'd show them a good time. Okay, that's what they were really looking for. So let's imagine the government is actually just looking to embarrass its political opponents in this way. But in the process, they actually managed to find a bound and gagged kidnapping victim, you know, in some private space. I'm saying, I'm admitting that was an unconstitutional search. It was utterly unreasonable. They had completely wrong um, motivation. They didn't have probable cause. They didn't have a warrant. Maybe they broke in illegally. They, they, They did all sorts of things. But we would never say, oh, that kidnapping victim, she's the fruit of a poisonous tree. And the government would never have found her alive, but for this unconstitutional search. So obviously we've got to give her back to the kidnapper and turn around and close our eyes, count to 20 or 20,000, and then try to find her again. Once you see that for the kidnapping victim, okay, we understand that we don't give her back, but we're never going to let her testify against her kidnappers, because that's fruit of the poisonous tree. If we hadn't done this unconstitutional search, we never would have found her alive. She never would have been able to testify against uh, the moral monsters who did that to her. No, that would be absurd. Once you see it for that, I say, well, suppose we find stolen goods. It's completely, you know, illegal search by hypothesis. I'm, I'm, I'm stipulating to that, Andy, as if this were three or three. I can, let me concede that for the purpose of the hypothetical, but still we shouldn't give the stolen goods back to the thief. We should give it to the rightful owner. And for similar reasons, I've always said, and we should, even if we just find evidence of crime, not give that back, we should use that to convict someone. And not just, I've said, to solve the past crime, but to prevent future crimes. Both because in, because I think some perpetrators are serial perpetrators. So just a matter of deterrence. If, if you catch a cat burglar, now he's not going to be able, I'm thinking of the Cary Grant movie with, if we catch the cat burglar and we don't exclude the evidence and we use it, even if it was illegally obtained, we're saving other people from future episodes of cat burgling, burglaring. Okay. Now I'm saying when it comes to this serial killer. If you actually solve the first crime, you're preventing all sorts of other crimes because people are, sometimes they're they're serial offenders, whether we're talking about cat burglary and stolen goods or kidnappers and kidnapping victims or rapists and murderers. And if you catch the person the first time, you're sparing innocent people down the line. So here's what I've just said. I actually made a threefold argument. I can protect more innocent victims my way by getting rid of the exclusionary rule. I am victims of crime. I can catch more 
crooks because I'm, I'm not tossing out reliable evidence. I also said I can spare more innocent people with a broader DNA database because right now, if someone is convicted of a crime they did not commit and they prove in their habeas petition that the DNA at the crime scene doesn't match their DNA, okay, because now we have improved DNA testing techniques, that's not enough to spring them because the prosecutor will often say, well, maybe you had an accomplice or, or maybe that's just someone else's DNA who just happened to, to be there, you know, the wife's or whatever and get contaminated with the crime scene. The fact that it's not your DNA doesn't prove you didn't do it. Here's what would exonerate you. If we are able to match that DNA to someone else, a cold hit who actually did do it and whom you've never met before and has the same MO and, and now we think that was that person and not you. Well, then you go free, but we're more likely to have that happen if we have a broader DNA database with more DNA in it. But right now, Andy, I know you are very, very nervous about a broader DNA database because we don't have sufficient regulation of it for just the reasons I talked about. And you might not want to have a broader DNA database, even if we did have more regulation. But anyway, now you see why this Long Island case adds the serial nature, uh, a new wrinkle to what we talked about back in Idaho. Yeah, I mean, I think when you come down to DNA, um, there's a lot of issues. What you're describing is a situation that actually is somewhat analogous to uh, health care reform. People have talked about rationing of health care. Object, they object to rationing of health care. But the reality is that we have rationing of health care now. It's just being done, if you will, Poorly. irrationally. You know, yeah. by you know, insurance companies or whatever. There's no no one's actually thinking about it uh, you know, and saying, okay. Given that we're rationing, you know, some aspects of healthcare, here's how we should do that that part of healthcare which we currently are rationing. We should ration this way. We shouldn't let the insurance companies. Do. And here, we are collecting DNA. There's no denial of that. The, the, you know, there there is a database somewhere, you know, or some collection of databases of DNA. It's not that we might object to collecting DNA. Would ever worry about it. We might not advocate for more DNA collection, but certainly it's reasonable to advocate for reasonable regulation of that DNA, which we have already collected. Um, and the DNA that we've already collected is not just of people who have been convicted of things, but sometimes people who have merely been arrested. We don't always and everywhere throw out that, the original sample or the, the DNA fingerprint we generate from that. And that's not utterly random either, Andy, because more African-Americans are caught up in the criminal justice system proportionately than the rest of us. And I just told you that even if your DNA isn't in the database, you can be implicated in all sorts of ways because your blood relatives information might be in the DNA database. And DNA can often generate information about blood relatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we were talking about interracial marriage before, but I think, you know, that's still, you know, the minority of marriages, certainly. So, 
Right. Probably. Right. So if more blacks are in the database, you're saying, Andy, and blacks are related, you know, for all sorts of reasons, disproportionately to other blacks, then more blacks today are at risk because of the, of this unregulated system than non-blacks, at least pr- proportionally. And yes. Yeah, I mean, probably if you did a mathematical analysis of it, there's probably some critical number. Like if you get X percent of a population uh, if you get their DNA, then you have information on everyone in that mm. population. And it's possible mm. that, that I mean, you're not going to have every gene, but you may have enough to, uh, you know, to pass some important threshold. So it may very well be that um, that, that that threshold has been passed for African-Americans, just as an example, um, and not for some other subgroup. And that would really be, a, be bad, you know, uh, be, be quite... Uh, Quite an unfortunate disparity there. So anyway, I think you know I I do. You're right. Have a have some con, have some very serious concerns about this because you're talking about regulation of DNA information. But I worry that whatever regulation you may have will be dispensed with in times of extremis. You know, uh, after nine eleven, you saw how you know so many safeguards that we thought you know held were being thrown at people, people's library book borrowings were suddenly, you know, fair game. And there's, a, you know, this old Latin expression, that's in time of war, the law goes silent. So, you know, I worry that whatever regulatory uh, constraints we, we pass may go away. And, and, and just at the time when, you know, we don't want to be a Japanese American that's interned for no reason, you know, or something like that. In some ways, privacy becomes more important in those. So therefore, I resist the idea of um, a national database of DNA of everyone. On the other hand, I would be in favor of greater regulation of that DNA that which we have already collected. And one final thing, this Long Island case not only involve a wife who's uh, rather than a blood relative who's been caught in the DNA dragnet, but they stalked this guy. Now, again, I think they had reasons to do it, um, but they didn't have to show that to a judge. They could just follow the, the person. And that means that the government could follow the, the child, the adult child of some political candidate, opposition party candidate or something today without needing to justify that. But they followed him. They saw him go into a phone phone store and buy burner phones and all the rest. Again, they followed him for a good reason. They found, you know, what they were looking for. You know, he's buying these phones and, and that's giving them all sorts of information. But current doctrine does not limit the ability of government to stalk you 24-7 because doctrine says, oh, that's not a search. And why is that not a search? Oh, because if it were a search, it would require a warrant. And and that seems overbroad that anytime any cop follows anyone who seems to be acting suspiciously, casing a joint or something, that requires a warrant or even probable cause, given that a short, you know, surveillance is relatively reasonable. It's unintrusive and limited. So my view isn't that at some point a non-search mere eyeball um, observation becomes a search. It's rather that at some point, and especially bad reasons, it becomes a reasonable search might become an unreasonable one. 
by dint of its extended duration or its lack of justification or the improper purpose that's behind it or what have you. If we put your things together, you know, we've got, well, you want to follow this guy. You think you have a good reason to do it. You want to do it. Um, and you can just do it. But no, under Akil's uh, scenario, his reinterpretation or recon- reconsideration of, of all of these doctrines, no, you, you have to make sure that it's reasonable. So one way would be just to satisfy yourself that it's reasonable, and then you could present it after the fact and say, I did this, and the judge could say, yes, that was reasonable. Or you could go to the judge and say, I think this is reasonable. Do you agree? And the judge could say yes, and then that would act as, uh, okay. Then, but suppose you take the first step. You don't go to the judge. You think it's reasonable, Okay, now you do it, or even you don't think you just want to get away with it. So now you do it, you get this evidence, you arrest the guy. Oh, the judge says, no, that was unreasonable. Well, okay, but now there's no exclusionary rule. So, 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 ha ha, you know, the, you're, you're guilty anyway. Yeah, I did this unreasonable search against you. You're guilty, ha ha. So, oh, maybe, so now you sue me. Well, but I have sovereign immunity or whatever. So you, you can't sue me. So under Akil's, you know, formulation, you get rid of that. So maybe you can sue him, but still. And, and any, it's not the guilty person who's really going to benefit the most from that. It's the innocent person who's being uh, harassed and surveilled. Let's imagine again, an opposition party candidate, uh, uh, a religious critic of the government or some family member, they're being stalked and surveilled, okay? And this is intruding on their privacy. In a Mars world, you see, it's not about the exclusionary rules, it's about tort law. They can bring a suit saying, you are stalking me. And the government's saying, you know, t- today, it's not a search. We can do whatever we want we, without any justification. A Mars world, no, you are, you really are searching me, you know, by surveilling me in all these ways. And now you're going to have to show that it was reasonable, why were you doing it and why this long and for what purpose and who's going to decide that in part a jury is going to decide that because the innocent person is going to sue for damages and punitive damages you've also said in the past we've discussed this you know i say well no one's going to want to be a policeman if they're going to be sued every time they they do a search or whatever um and and they would be probably um you know there'd be a million suits and who wants to you know they're not it's bad enough for doctors. <laughs> they don't want to. They don't want to deal with that. And so you say, well, they're not really going to be necessarily personally liable. They'll be indemnified. Correct. But it, it's but, going to be the police department, but and then, ultimately the taxpayers. And here's again why I like my system because the taxpayers. No system is perfect. I'm just saying mine's better than the existing regime. Remember the existing regime. The three affirmative pillars. Warrant requirement, probable cause requirement, exclusionary rule, and then a gazillion exceptions to all of those things. A Mars world, reasonableness, a broad definition of search and seizure, and tort liability. But tort liability is going to mean the following thing. It's not going to be perfect, but the it's not going to be the cop. It's going to be the department, and ultimately it's not the department. It's going to be the people, uh, you know, the taxpayers, but they're going to be able to see two things every year, much more transparently. One, What's the liability bill for this police department compared to last year and the year before? Is it getting better or worse? Two, what's the liability 
bill for our police department compared to other police departments, L.A. compared to Chicago, compared to New York City, just like crime murder rates and things like that. And that's not perfect, but it still is taking all the different kinds of government intrusions because they're different sizes and shapes and searches and seizures. It's monetizing them. And that's crude, putting a dollar limit on all this. But you add it all together and at least you have a number that can tell me as Joe taxpayer is my city getting better or worse? And how does it compare to other cities? Which is useful when it turn, it comes time to pick the next mayor or city council or if, to the extent that these are voted on uh, the next police chief. I mean, I think it depends, to some extent this, this involves a ranking of priorities because if the most important thing to you as an American citizen is to feel that you are insulated from uh, unreasonable surveillance. Okay. Now, of course, this following you around stuff, you know, I is is you know is bad. Um, but you could fix that without having to implement all of these other. Uh, you know, you could just say no. You can't. That's an, another example of a unreasonable search um, that you need. You would need a warrant for or something like that. Even under the current, uh, you know, setup. But. I think many people have a sense that the exclusionary rule creates an atmosphere and a set of incentives where the police are strongly incentivized to not commit, not perform illegal searches. And you have to, you would have to weigh that against the set of incentives that's set up by a, your alternative system where the policeman is not personally responsible. The conviction is not going to go away, but the police department might be on the hook and maybe they'll hold that against the policeman because he cost them money. But right. so, per, you know, so if the most important thing to you as a citizen is to be free of such searches, then I, you know, I wonder if you, if your set of incentives and you say, well, you just make it more money. Exactly. But, but my, I'm not my, sure. My tor- but I, I don't necessarily buy that. I mean, okay. Because- well, that's because, and that's because, you studied one thing and I studied a different thing and I am economistically trained and my tax teacher would use really simple hypotheticals using simple numbers, three, four, five. And he would always say, and if this isn't interesting to you, keep adding zeros till it becomes interesting. Mm-hmm. So if you're getting not enough deterrence, I can always give you more, Andy. And I promise you there's a, you know, at a certain price, you will get people's attention. Okay. And then you say, oh, well, there's too much deterrence. But right now, we have all the same problems of over deterrence and under deterrence, but actually we can't easily adjust the dials and the levers. Okay. Because right now we have all these exceptions and it's not easy to say, well, we're getting too much deterrence now of police. They're just afraid to do anything. So from now on, Tuesdays are free. Um, and, you know, um, uh, we're getting too little deterrence right now. So here's what we're going to do. Not only does this guy go free, but we're going to spin the lottery wheel and some random other convict in Leavenworth is going to going to walk free. So so right now we actually have all the same conceptual problems, I assure you, of over and under deterrence. But we're just not actually thinking about it in a smart, systematic way. Well, I think that makes sense that it's nice to have a system where you can adjust the numbers, but I, I wonder if there's, it may be that there is no number that would be correct because either you'd be overdoing it or underdoing um, and you can't always titrate everything to money. Um, he, he, but he, he, I knew, you know, this is what everyone says, here's why that can't be right. Because 
your hypothetical initially involved a guilty guy and you said, ha ha, you know, when there are innocent people, Andy, they're intruded upon. For them, the exclusionary rule is diddly. It means nothing at all. I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. So for them, it's damages or nothing. When they come in and strip search me in front of my children, you know, my name is Webster Bivens mm-hmm. and I haven't done anything. I happen to be black and, and they just are doing this. That's why you need a thing called 1983. It's why you need a thing called Bivens for innocent people. It is kind of often damages or nothing. Now, if you know they're going to do it in advance, oh, in a Mars world, you can get an injunction, you can get class actions, all sorts of other things. But we, we have to have this, you know, up uh, right side up rather than upside down system for the innocent people. So well, just to repeat, convincing I, I argument that, for, for, for uh, improving the position of the innocent, but it doesn't address my, my question about the, the, uh, you know, the atmosphere of governmental intrusion, and even the guilty are entitled to certain rights. And, uh, you know, you're not, perhaps you're underprotecting them. I don't know. I don't know that I'm all about protecting the guilty, but, but right. anyway. So um, just, just to sum up, the, here, the, the, I think there are three pillars today. I offer three alternative pillars and three or four beneficiaries. Okay, so today is a warrant requirement, a probable cause requirement, an exclusionary rule requirement combined with a gazillion exceptions and too narrow a definition of what counts as a search. My world, a broad vision of what counts as a search, but that only requires reasonableness and we don't have an exclusionary rule, we have tort remedies. Here, in my view, is what happens if you switch from current doctrine to my interpretation of the Fourth Amendment. It makes more sense of what the Fourth Amendment says and its, and its history because the founders are smarter than modern judges. But in principle, I can give you more deterrence of bad uh, government behavior at less social costs and a, and a better distribution among beneficiaries and victims. Or maybe put a slightly different way, I can catch more bad guys with my DNA rules. I can exonerate more innocent people. I can protect more victims of crime, present and future you know, win, win, win. The exclusionary rule, because it throws out information, actually creates all sorts of false negatives and false positives in all sorts of ways. So um, you also so, get better police honesty and oh, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Because right now, um, cops are going to lie to avoid damage actions, but they lie to get evidence in. Test lying is always going to be a problem. I don't think that any of the issues today goes away. My simple claim is. Every one of those issues is better, albeit imperfectly handled, using this other framework. Is there another country that has a framework like that that you can point to uh, and and show that uh, you have some statistics or something to show that it works better? England has no exclusionary rule, never has. Well, that's part of your system, but um, do they also implement the rest of your... I don't know enough about uh, England. Seems like um, it might be worth investigating. Maybe the audience has something to weigh in on this. All right. So, I, yeah, I mean, this is sort of, uh, in, in some sense, it's well-trod uh, territory for our um, podcast. We've gone over some of these things before. But uh, so I I thought I might uh, challenge you a little bit more this time. Um, so, uh, so maybe our audience, uh, you know, gets a little bit more of a uh, Socratic <laughs> approach to it. Not that I'm Socrates. Um, but 
anyway, you know, we, so as we got into this, I realized that we, one thing we wanted to talk about, but we're not going to have time, obviously, as we come to the end of this, this episode, uh, was your recent article in the National Review declaring independence from Thomas Jefferson. So this uh, appeared in July 13th, I believe, at least on, that's the online date for it. And, um, you know, quite And I think it's in the print edition now. Yeah, I think so. A uh, very interesting article, which, of course, was prompted by, in a way, by one of our earlier podcasts when we had um, Kermit Roosevelt on. And we kind of disagreed with some of the things that he was saying, but it it caused, a, I think, you and, and perhaps others to have a, a reconsideration of Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence and Jefferson as a whole. And this article really interesting article you know takes takes jefferson to task even as it gives him you know credit for what he did accomplish so i i look forward to discussing it with you and i'm i'm going to uh to explore just to tease it out a little bit for our audience what is wrong with the traditional view that thomas jefferson wrote the declaration of independence full stop um what is wrong with the traditional view that Jefferson really was was anti-slavery in in a significant way, and um, and also I'd like to to discuss what this actually has to do with the Fourth of July in 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 a deeper way than just saying well it happened Declaration was written on the Fourth of July, but what else does it have to do with the Fourth of July? So those are some things that we're going to explore when we when we address this. Uh, but in the meantime, audience, you can read the article which will help to prepare you for uh, for this podcast, which will occur at some future date. And uh, we'll put up the article on the website. And Andy, here's one little link. Yes, we had this great conversation with Kim Roosevelt, two-parter, and that got me thinking. And in fact, that led to a fun event with Kim Roosevelt at the National Constitution Center with Ramesh Panuru, who actually commissioned this piece from the National Review. So there are, there are all these links. Here's one thing that I think Kim has really highlighted because he basically says, gee, the center of our national narrative is Thomas Jefferson. And the problem isn't just that Thomas Jefferson had this relationship with Sally Hemings and uh, fine, um, or not fine, not so but, fine. <laughs> but he enslaved his own children and never acknowledged his own children and how can that person, you know, be our national hero? And I think Kim is right about that. Um, the only thing I want to say as we uh, end this episode is, how do we know all of that? Three letters, D-N-A. Okay. And on that note, we'll see you next week with, I believe, the way it's setting up now with an episode with a special guest. Mm-hmm.